It's quite incredible how quickly our teams adapt to their environment, and it never ceases to amaze me how quickly they can cotton on to a great excuse. Sorry, my laptop's glitching. I'm not sure that's much of a technical term, but it does seem to cover all manner of ills to justify not putting the camera or the microphone on. But beneath the cunning, is there a more serious issue? Is this a symptom of the fact that our children are actually disengaging from learning? And will this, perhaps more passive role, harm their prospects in the future? Hello, and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, the founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021, or at least they were intended to sit their GCSE exams. Each week, I catch up with these very different teens to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that have come up. Now, they could be broad themes, such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. Now, these are normal teens, so you can be sure that we'll be covering topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, a carer, or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at remote learning and how our young people can get the most out of schooling at home. I'm delighted to be joined by Tom Rose. Tom is currently the Programme Director at Oak National Academy. The National Academy is an initiative that was set up by teachers to provide high-quality pre-recorded video lessons for pupils from early years through to Year 11. Before joining Oak, Tom worked in teacher training and development with Teach First and also curriculum development with the Multi-Academy Trust ARC Schools. Tom, thank you so much for joining me. Remote and digital learning has become a feature of our team's reality for quite a while now. They don't always find it easy. However, I think it's fair to say that they've got themselves into a comfortable groove. Unfortunately, with the cancellation of exams, many are now unsure about what they need to do with new content. That is to say, something in the curriculum that they hadn't already covered. Anastasia, for example, talked about the differences amongst her teachers her English teacher very much going over what they'd already covered, while her physics teacher is ploughing ahead with new stuff. She finds it very difficult to learn in this environment, and partly that's down to the fact that she, like significant if not overwhelming number of teens, doesn't want to be the first one off of mute, let alone ask a question. And this is now leading her to try to plug some of the gaps herself after the lessons have finished. No, I hate everything online because I like being face to face to someone and if I wanted help in class then I'd put my hand up and they'd come over to me mm. and we could have a discussion, just us two and like, have a conversation whereas on Zoom or on Teams we have at school it's very, oh, put your hand up on the screen, put your hand up and then it's a tiny conversation because I have put myself back on mute again it just feels like you're more disturbing the class to ask questions and things like that Tom, do you think that it's possible to adequately learn new content in this remote context? I think it's hard, but I don't think it's by any means impossible. I can fully understand why some teachers may really want to focus on ensuring that you've mastered counting to 10 before you're doing long division, to give a very simple example. At the same time, in the situation we're in now, just going over the basics or just going over content that's already been covered in school 
I don't think really remains an option. I think it was an option that quite a lot of schools took in the initial lockdown because it seemed like, oh, there's something that's going on for six weeks, maybe. It went on a lot longer than that. The approach being taken by a lot of schools now is not the assumption that we'll be going back into school undisrupted at half term. And for that reason, I think a lot more schools have actually engaged with teaching live lessons, engaged with the technology required to do that, engaged with resources which are out there which can support them, of which Oak National Academy, where, where I work, is one, and engaged with the challenge of just continuing the curriculum and delivering new content, which is a huge, massive challenge for teachers. And it's really exciting to see the sector once again rising to a massive challenge. Absolutely. And we've said it before, and I will very happily keep banging the drum, that I think we underestimate the amount of adapting that teachers have had to make to this new environment. I mean, as parents, we feel it because we're now juggling many more balls while the lockdown continues. But teachers, again, have had to go from a classroom environment to remote learning and understanding what that means, and also trying to support the pupils as best as they can while they're learning this new technology and this new way of working. So I think it's absolutely incredible that they should still rise to the challenges, as you say, that they have. So as you say, in maths, you can see that you need to be able to learn how to add and subtract before you can start to tackle algebra or more complicated things. So that makes perfect sense. Interested with the history, as you say, if you were to study the Tudors, then it doesn't necessarily lead you on to studying the Treaty of Versailles or World War I or any of these other things. But baked into that learning of the Tudors, I'm presuming are skills, and that's what's happening. It's how you investigate, how you read text, how you reference things like that. And that's what's being taught at those stages for the pupils. Is that right? Yeah, there is both like the content and how that content is sequenced, and then how you, the analytical skills in history and the research skills that you would acquire. And the curriculum design is planning both of those things in a way that's appropriate to that subject. And also revisiting the skills, the idea of a spiral curriculum or just planning an assessment that revisits prior learning and like all of the research from cognitive science, all of those things are part of curriculum design as well. And so where teachers are going over prior content in whatever the subject is or redoing assessments, that's perfectly normal. That's the best practice in terms of ensuring that knowledge and the learning of skills is being kind of embedded and transferred to long term memory as well. That ideally shouldn't be at the cost of bringing in new content as well. And it's balancing that in a whole new learning environment, which is part of the challenge. As you say, we've heard actually a lot about retrieval practice and the cognitive science that sits behind that. One of the things I think that was interesting then about the classroom delivery of learning or teacher-led delivery of learning is that it's that initial bit of encoding that helps the new material get embedded in order for it to be retrieved in the first place. How adaptable do you think we've been to doing that in this new online environment? And what are the pitfalls that are involved in ensuring pupils are really taking on board this new content? I think the number one, the biggest challenge that teachers face is the light bulb moment has been kind of altered. Whether you are kind of teaching over Zoom or live classroom, or even more so if the lesson is pre-recorded and asynchronous, there is not that moment where or it's much harder to see where that point is where the student is like, gets it or more importantly, doesn't get it, and then being able to tailor that support in that moment. Like you can still get, if you you know set an assessment at the end of the lesson, ask for work to be handed in, yes, you can still see where students may not have got it, but you're missing that live relationship because you can't see 30 faces in a Zoom call. You can try, but you can't really see that. And what you're also missing is that see me at the end of the class, or actually, I think to put that into modern terms, the student asking to see you at the end of the class. And I'm sure there will be students who are doing that, and there will be parents doing that, saying, you know, my son or daughter hasn't got this concept. Can you help me with it? I know from my own children's experience, there are teachers who go above and beyond in making time to support that. 
but the link has been broken, if you like, and it's much harder to get over that. And I think for a lot of students working through a Zoom environment, they have to adapt to new ways of interacting. Some people like being able to ask something in the chat bar, that's been a real positive for people who wouldn't want to put their hands up, but are willing to like to engage in that way. But that doesn't mean that that necessarily works in the majority. And there'll be some people who are put off by that and aren't going to be raising their hands on a Zoom call either, or are struggling with the technology, accessing it from a mobile phone, or don't have the data access to do it at all. And for those people, it's significantly more challenging to support that learning. And that was actually something that Anastasia talked about this week, was that in a classroom environment, she could either put her hand up or her teacher would know that she was struggling with something and so then it would be dealt with. And that's something that she's really, really struggled to get to grips with because, and I know this from my own experience with Emily, my daughter, actually she doesn't want to be seen. She doesn't want to have the video on, definitely. That's an absolute no. And she really, really doesn't like coming off of mute unless at least two of her friends from a close circle have done something similar beforehand. I think these teens, by virtue of their age perhaps, are feeling very self-conscious about it as well. And I think it's really hard for them then to sort of either be strong about what it is that they need support in and ask for it afterwards, rather than then just struggle through and think, well, I'll make it up some other time. Yeah, I think that's really hard. And great teachers set the expectations of their classroom and what interaction in that classroom looks like and being like in a live classroom in a school being on mute isn't an option and generally putting hands up is like cold calling on students to check that everyone's understood you don't get it's not just those people who want to put their hands up that answer questions but transferring the great practice of a physical classroom to something online is hugely challenging there's not a huge amount of research to support it all and the sector is learning as it goes in how to do this you know, what you're saying in terms of some of the reticence of teenage learners to work out how to engage in that new environment is a very real challenge. And I would also say the challenge of commonly now known as Zoom fatigue is a big one and how to balance the learning across the day and the educational inputs. As adults, we all know if if you're on Zoom call eight hours a day, you come off and your brain is fried. (laughs) And that's the experience that students are having as well that's not necessarily a positive one when it comes to learning. No, absolutely. And you can see as well that if you're tired and if you've become frustrated at the amount of video calls and that remoteness and the energy quite naturally isn't going to be the same as if you're in a classroom, the engagement with the teacher, no matter how hard they try, is never going to be the same as in that physical environment. That actually you do wonder whether or not the learning is going in in the same kind of way. And that's without even starting to look at some of the other practices that the teachers would pick up on. So for my daughter, they use a lot of OneNote so that they can see the final output if you're sharing some maths questions or marking up things on a map for geography or, or whatever it might be. But actually, when the teacher's delivering new content, I've noticed that Emily doesn't take notes. So there's no textbooks and no exercises. And now I don't know whether that's me being old, not quite wax tablet old, but old enough that everything was scribbled down into a pad. That's sort of your evidence of learning. But you don't see that now. I'm wondering whether or not our children are ready for this sharp veering off in their way of learning. I think it's an interesting balance because copying the board is not necessarily learning. There are some people for whom that really does help to embed it. But again, the evidence with memory suggests that you remember what you think about. And I'm certainly one of those people that like writing something down does help me to think about it. But I think like just copying down the map of the solar system doesn't necessarily embed that learning. It's thinking about the map of the solar system and the critical thinking and like answering questions or answering questions in a slightly different context, like looking at a map of a different solar system and what does that think about? You know, making notes for notes sake 
I don't think parents should be necessarily thinking there aren't reams and reams of notes, so no learning is happening. Teachers and students as well who are becoming digital natives are finding out new ways of making that work. I'm not saying that no student should be making any notes, but I think it's about finding that balance. And the challenge is getting people thinking about what they're learning, asking questions about it and being challenged around that rather than just copying down what a teacher might be putting on a PowerPoint presentation. So then it sounds to me that engagement with the topic or the subject becomes absolutely paramount of importance. That if you've got a lesson on the solar system, which is drab and the teacher's talking through stuff and the child is disengaged, and as we said earlier, the teacher will never know that to be able to switch tack, then actually they're not going to pick it up as much as if there was some video about it that was pre-recorded, perhaps, to talk about it in a much more entertaining kind of way that would be adapted to the pupils. Now, there are any number of ways in which you could do that. Solar system in particular, actually, I remember that my son and daughter both know the order of the planets in the solar system by virtue of a Dr. Seuss poem. (laughs) It's those kinds of things. It wasn't necessarily the science teacher that did it, but it was somewhere else. What we found, I think, initially in the first lockdown was because schools weren't ready, quite understandably, that I think we were finding a lot of pupils were getting emailed work. This is an assignment that I would need you to do. Hand it back in next Thursday. And then that pendulum seems to have swung for many where the resources are available to be a lot more about live lessons. So then, as you say, we seem to be in this position where some pupils could be having six, seven hours of live lessons every day. And I wonder whether actually increasingly are you seeing that there's a more hybrid approach with maybe a teacher introducing a topic and then directing to other resources so that they can find their own way of not teaching themselves, but discovering and thinking about this for themselves. I think hybrid approach is an interesting way of thinking about it. And also to kind of factor into this, the capacity that teachers have to plan and deliver and share those live lessons as well, given that there are lots of resources available that can essentially provide the input content and potentially allow teachers to focus in some subject areas more than others. And we know that schools are making choices about which lessons they do live versus which lessons they may pre-record themselves or use other resources for. Some schools are making choices right now about the breadth of the curriculum as well and what they can offer at this time that they think is really meaningful and high quality versus what might actually be the normal curriculum in school. And that's really hard because it means that subjects which are really important in terms of creativity and learning and balance of a normal education may feel lost and squeezed for right now. But I think it's about finding ways not to ignore them completely. But it may be that there is a predominant focus on, you know, particularly in primary education, on literacy and numeracy, ensuring that people aren't being left behind in those areas and having that kind of core focus of teachers' time. I know that parent supporting learning is completely contingent on the capacity and ability and what they're doing and whether they're key workers. But potentially there are some subjects which like parents can feel more comfortable supporting with minimum input and others where they would just be out of their depth because they hadn't studied GCSE physics, for example. I think it's really interesting to think actually that the school day is balanced and it's not accidental. And I think many parents are sort of really appreciating that now that maths on a Tuesday doesn't happen just because it's there. It's actually a significant amount of detail that sits underneath what's actually going to happen on that given Tuesday for maths and how the rest of the, the knowledge is structured. But also within the day, they do have things like creative time. They do have physical education time. And there are the other lessons that are off of exam-based curriculums. And I wonder, are they the kinds of things that you think are suffering with some students in remote learning, if it's not something they're predisposed to do? Really interesting question. I come at this from different ways. I think there are some almost kind of the basics, the basic hygiene of home learning is like not that dissimilar to the basic hygiene of home working either. 
there being some routine like rule number one get out of your pajamas which you know everyone jokes about but it's actually really important it's something we discuss with our you know my, my own children that's the first thing you're not coming on the zoom call in your pajamas because it sets the wrong mentality and, and the division between like night and day and also kind of getting out of the house having fresh air having exercise I once worked in a school which had no playground. The impact on behaviour and engagement was significant. But the idea that despite the awful weather uh, that certainly I'm experiencing in the northwest at the moment, stepping away from the computer, getting out, getting some exercise, getting some fresh air, those things are critical. And there's a reason why there's a break time at school, not just to give the teachers a break. And building those into a routine at home is really important. My wife notices because she's doing the homeschooling with my three children, that when we don't do those things, that has a massive impact on (laughs) the afternoon particularly the end of the day, I'd say there were some kind of fundamental basics to get right about well-being more than anything and kind of mentality that apply across the board. Then I think it will vary by individual student. And there will be students who, from a point of view of motivation and feeling engaged, there will be some people for whom that more creative curriculum, aspect of the curriculum, whether we are talking art, drama, humanities, is a key motivator to them learning. A solely narrow focus on literacy and numeracy is likely to mean that they disengage. So how do you think we can go about encouraging a holistic approach amongst our children so they don't just focus on the subjects that they think they're going to be examined in, if, if that's how they lean? Well, if you listen to my 10-year-old, he'll tell you that Minecraft is creative. And it is. It's a very creative environment. And actually, it's an environment that's both creative and social and has been a lifeline, actually, in terms of the full lockdown that we're now in. And he is a creative and social person. That doesn't mean that we plug him into Minecraft in the morning and that's it. But as a social and creative activity, it's something that helps him to remain that balance to well-being. I'm not saying that replaces the fact that like Minecraft is the only creative input he's getting. He's getting art input from his school as well. But I don't think I use that example glibly, but, but also to make the point that, you know, sometimes that kind of creative release doesn't need to be a taught lesson. Sometimes there are other ways of being able to do that that don't require that direct input from the school. But I also think lots of schools are being creative about how they can provide that as well. Uh, Oak, we took on the challenge of creating 9,000 lessons over the summer holidays, but we dodged the challenge initially of working out how we would deliver PE and drama and design and technology through an online lesson. We didn't know at the time, and we already had a very big goal. But those subjects quite rightly said to us, hang on a second, what about us? We're really important and like we should not be left behind in this. And so we've been working with some amazing partners on those subjects and those lessons are going to be released on the 26th of January, which is hugely exciting. But it's been really like challenging to work out how you deliver those kind of sessions remotely that rely on quite a lot of equipment or outdoor space. But we think it's possible. We've had a go at it to get students engaging with the idea through an online format. There are schools that are putting on a full curriculum across the day and it starts at nine and it finishes at three and expected to be in every lesson. But there are also schools which are showing like more flexibility in that, particularly in start time. And it's something there's been research around for a while, sleep and teenagers. And there's very good evidence and research about sleep patterns, et cetera. And there's been some pilots about schools which have started at 10 a.m. And the impact that that's seen on engagement, attendance, well-being and grades. I'm not expecting that when after the lockdown ends, we'll suddenly see a shift to nation adopting that. Again, from my very own experience, I have a 10-year-old who struggles to get to sleep and will sleep in naturally longer in the morning. And the fact that first video lesson starts at 9.30 and we wake him up at 9 for that has actually been a benefit to his well-being. And I think it's something that, you know, parents like should feel comfortable experimenting with. There were opportunities like that that soften all of the other impacts as well. It's interesting because Anastasia talked about that as well, that her school start at a normal time. They're putting in all of the normal lessons, but her day's finishing at half two. So at half two, she's taking some time out and then she's coming back to finishing off. And 
We did hear in the first season, actually, from Dr. Faith Orchard about sleep. And as you say, the way that the teenage brain is geared to, or, and maybe tween in your 10-year-old's case, is geared to waking up that little bit later. And like you say, we've heard from a, a number of parents who are sort of really finding that's a big benefit because it feels like the right balance for the people they're suffering in the same way that many of the others are. And so if they can have a little bit longer in bed and then approach the day, then great that that suits them. I'd like to come back to Oak. And you mentioned before that you're looking at bringing in the drama and some of the creative lessons, having done it before. And read about Oak and this absolutely incredible effort to create what seems like an entire online school based around thousands of videos. Absolutely incredible. And I wonder if you could just explain us to a bit about how Oak came about and actually what it is. We're incubated by a charity called the Reach Foundation, which is part of a fantastic school, the Reach Multi-Academy Trust in Felton. We've been given this home, but it was brought about by a group of teachers and techies who saw that there was a full lockdown coming very, very quickly and started chatting on a WhatsApp group. And we're actually able to leverage an online teacher survey app called TeacherTap to ask 6,000 teachers across the sector overnight. This is coming. We can see this is going to happen. Schools are going to be closed indefinitely. What one thing could we do that would really support teachers and students and parents in this situation? What would be the most helpful thing? And there were a number of options given, but the overwhelmingly most popular suggestion was create an online bank of high quality lessons that teachers and parents could pull on as opposed to as, as very often happens in education each school reinventing the wheel and doing it all themselves and it snowballed in March last year over these holidays from this being this idea to a concept of what this would look like and what an asynchronous so a pre-recorded lesson what the key elements of that would be to bringing on board a group of partners and schools during the first lockdown who would create those lessons all in the space of a very hectic few weeks, which was, I should say, before I joined Oak. I joined in June last year. And kind of the first product was this kind of weekly classroom, which had core lessons recorded by the Friday so they could be checked and launched by the Sunday for the following week. We're soon reaching kind of 200,000 students a week using the lessons, just far exceeded the expectations of the group that set it up and also caught the eye of the department who saw, well, people have come up with a solution which is linked to the curriculum, which is quality. Coming near the end of that, I could just see like quite what a massive effort it had been with only skeleton funding, an amazing committed group of teachers and and also the software team who were kind of pulling many, many late nights to get the platform live and to keep it live as it became more and more popular. There was quite a lot of feedback, particularly from teachers that this was a great thing. And particularly when you know teachers and schools were struggling to adapt to the online environment, it was something that parents could use. For a lot of schools, they were reticent to use it. And one of the reasons was schools plan their curricula carefully. Suddenly for a school to be told, this is what you're teaching next week. They might say, well, I've planned it in a different way. We've done this, we've done that. We're not doing the Tudors. We are doing the Nazis. We're not doing Macbeth. We are doing Romeo and Juliet. Oak, by necessity, had had to just make those decisions very quickly. And actually, what was missing was the opportunity to have flexibility and have a bigger picture view of what the online lessons might be, and then to be able to make decisions about when they would teach them. It became evident very quickly that the easiest way around this solution was to record the whole curriculum, because then schools could have visibility of it, and then they could do what they like. But that would mean 10,000 lessons, and that's just not possible, is it? And that's what led to conversations with the DFE and the idea that actually we brought on, you know, formally engaged schools and curriculum experts to develop a curriculum in their subject across primary through to the end of secondary and create a summer project to record all the lessons that accompany those curricula. Then come what may this year from this academic year, there will be a resource that schools who are increasingly being told they have to come up with a remote learning offer 
they could build this into their offer in a way that suited them rather than it being like, well, we have to do it our way or just do it their way. And that's what happened. A big motivation for doing it was not just learning of students, but it was also teacher well-being. When teachers were being told schools were opening again, but you've got to provide online provision as well, they were essentially given double jobs. And if we could provide something, you meant like we've got your remote learning sorted. You just need to pick the lessons and sequence those as the best fit of what you're doing. You focus on in school. That was, we felt, a massive support to the sector. And that justified actually all of the effort and, and the money that was spent by the DfE. Now that's been completely changed by being in a full lockdown again. And the usage has gone. We're seeing over a million students a day using the lessons. We had our biggest day, I think this Monday, four million minutes of lessons watched. I might have got that number wrong. It might have been higher. Even the effort of keeping the site live, there has not been downtime this term, has been a monumental effort by our team. It is absolutely incredible. And as someone who's been involved in web developments in my past, it's a phenomenal undertaking to do something of that size. But to do something of that size with shoestring budgets in the in the first place and in such a short amount of time is nothing. Well, it's, it's a Herculean effort and such a fantastic and noble reasoning behind doing it as well. The whole thing's absolutely incredible. Am I right in thinking that this then is, from what you've said, entirely complementary to the way that schools work? So some schools will obviously create their own content and obviously that's fine because that suits in their curriculum. But another school might direct their pupils to an Oak National Academy resource for a particular lesson that they've got planned. And so they can dip in and dip out as sees fit. It's not that your pupils are now not enrolling into the Oak National Academy, for example. I know you used enrolment lightly there, but one of the early decisions was never to have logins because we felt any login would be a barrier, both in terms of our ability to help people remember their passwords, but but also just to engagement. There is no barrier in that sense, but, but we, we originally had a schedule, a timetable in the original classroom. It's not an either or in the way that we work now. It's a both and. We now have two apps that you access through our website, the national.academy. One is the one that, that students are used to, and it's, it's often how the students would see the site, which is called the classroom, which has a daily schedule, but also has all of the content there. And when you go into a lesson, it takes you through that lesson and you click through the elements, the video, the quiz and everything. But it's kind of the user experience is designed for the learner. What our software team also built over the summer was the teacher hub. The, the classroom is kind of the green part of the app. The teacher hub is the kind of purpley blue part. And the teacher hub is where the curriculum sits and it's designed for education experts. And that's where we like, you can see the whole curriculum, how it's sequenced. You can see every single unit. You can see every single part of the lesson and where copyright allows, which is a constraint, you can download those resources. And so it's not just the case that you would direct your students towards them for their online lesson and put it in your online environment like Google Classroom. If you're teaching in school, you can use the PowerPoint. You can download it and adapt it. So it's a resource from that perspective as well. The teacher hub is the kind of the flexible part where teachers can choose the sequence of what they do and basically see the back end of it and select it like they would from a kind of a library of lessons. Also, this is something that's accessible by parents and also by the students who are sort of directing their own learning as well. So they can either follow the schedules, as you say, in the classroom, or if Anastasia, for example, wants to consolidate her redshift lesson that she's had in physics but didn't properly understand, she'd be able to go to the classroom and find the resources that underpinned that part of the curriculum and sort of help with how she understands it. My sister, actually, who's well beyond school, but works in a diseases organisation in Vietnam, used one of our GCSE lessons yesterday to gem up about infectious diseases because she's a novice in that area, unlike a lot of her colleagues. All of the content is in the classroom and the classroom is more designed for pupils to go in and look and you can like search by key stage, search by subject, then go in and see all of the units that are there. You can search by keywords as well. And then all of the content, if you went in and, you know, searched for any lesson about a topic, 
then all of the lessons will come up. There could be any number of lessons, but you could see all of them, all of the lessons that might be relevant. We've tried to create the functionality that means students and teachers can self-navigate as well. That sounds like an absolutely fantastic resource. And during this period of time, especially, is it something that you think will continue? Despite all of the effort that's going in from schools, from the sector and from parents, we know that students are missing out on learning. When schools fully open again, there will be significant gaps across subjects that, you know, at a very individual level that are barriers to students progressing in the way that they would have done. And we hope that a resource like Oak can be a big part of helping that. And we know that the government is planning at the moment for what catching up will look like and how they will support that. We hope we can be part of that solution that, you know, teachers can think, well, now I've been able to do some kind of diagnostic assessment. I know that student X can't count to 10. I can give some focus on that, but I can also direct them towards other resources and there'll be, you know, the tutoring programs, which are going to be rolled out as well. But we hope we can be part of the patchwork of solutions, which will mean that where learning has been missed, people can be directed towards opportunities to catch up. We hope that that would mean that with the support, we would remain open beyond just this August. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today and to share your perspective. Remote learning has been a real, well, education for everyone. For some parents, it's been a welcome opportunity to take a much more active role in their children's education, while for many others, this has been an unexpected and unwelcomed additional plate to try to keep spinning while roller skating downstairs. It's fair to say that schools and teachers have also been thrust into this new way of doing things with no more warning than the rest of us. Delivering online lessons was not part of the teacher handbook. However, it is really encouraging to see the openness and enthusiasm so many in the profession have shown. And you can really see that in the evolution of remote schooling. As Tom explained, we're all learning and adapting all of the time. There's no doubt that remote lessons have some serious pitfalls for a number of pupils. Teachers in a classroom can see when energy is dipping or they can identify if a student is struggling with a concept. But that kind of awareness doesn't kick in over Zoom or Teams. I mean, how can it? But isn't that where we as parents can start to play a role? As we've heard before, encouraging your teen to summarise a lesson, probably without directly asking, is a great way for helping their learning. But more importantly than that, it can even highlight some of these gaps. Now, your child might not want to stick their virtual hand up in an online lesson, but they should be perfectly comfortable calling out their concerns to you. Now, in the past, you might have struggled to know what to do for the best, Certainly for me, if Emily had a biology lesson on, say, cell division that she struggled with, I'm probably not going to be much use to her. I might have suggested that she reread the pages in her textbook or perhaps asked her teacher, not that she would have wanted to have done that. But now, with the incredible resources that Tom talked about through the Oak National Academy, I could very easily help her to identify the right lessons for her to work on. And these are then delivered by teachers. And that's the kind of parent-supported learning I think that we can all engage with. Increasingly, our teens are going to be missing out on parts of the curriculum that would have been covered in normal years. School are working incredibly hard, but I think it's reasonably inevitable that some topic areas will have been missed by the time things return to how they were. And that could be problematic not just for this year's exam cohort, but for the younger years too. As Tom said, 
Some learning is incremental. You need to have covered one topic in order to make sense of the next one. The school timetable is already packed, and so catching up might become something that our students need to take personal responsibility for. But also, as we've heard from previous guests, learning helps us to learn more. There are skills and practices that we use and that are taught that our children need, and without them, there might be significant hurdles to progressing. So, getting to a stage where your teen can identify those gaps and, even more importantly, identify what they can do to plug them is going to stand them in really good stead for the future. But this kind of thing should be done with a very careful eye on their well-being, of course. To that end, it's even more important that they aren't just focused on the academic, but also their social and creative selves. And part of that you would hope, can come in the form of flexibility. Now, the study buddy is all about how best to organise and schedule time, so you'd expect me to be a supporter of routine and a structured approach to time management. But an essential underpinning principle is balance and identifying what needs to be done and when it can be factored in around other commitments and activities and downtime. The last thing any of us want is for our teens to become overwhelmed by what holes might exist in their schooling and for that to have a knock-on effect to their self-confidence and their mental health. I hope that you found this episode as interesting and useful as I have. If you did, would you take a moment to leave a five-star rating and perhaps a review too? It really does help us to reach other parents and spread the word on how they can support their own young people. Of course, sharing the link to this and other episodes with friends on your social media is always very much appreciated. There will be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.